Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders doing the podcast on a rare Saturday morning. Usually this is a Sunday morning thing for me, but we have kind of a busy weekend ahead, and I'm trying to figure out where to work in the time to make a video and where to do the podcast. we got some stuff we got to do around the house. We have a UFC event on later that's going to start early that's kind of throwing off my whole day. Huge UFC fan. So trying to figure out when to do this. So I'm like, you know what? Let me just do the podcast on a Saturday morning. That's actually when I used to do them back in the day. And then I kind of switched it around to Saturday was my video day and Sunday was my podcast day. Sometimes it feels like it, like an extra job, like a part-time job on the side. But figured we'd jump right into it. But of course, I'll only be posting it on Sunday and hopefully I'll remember to post it on Facebook this week because last week apparently I forgot to post it on Facebook. Usually my buddy Nathaniel gives me a heads up and apparently he didn't notice this time so I didn't realize it until today when I went to look and see if there were any responses to the last podcast and received nothing because nobody it was never posted on Facebook so nobody could respond to it. So my bad. I, I have a, I've explained this before when I put it up on Buzzsprout there is a thing where you can go right to Buzzsprout and it'll say post on Facebook and you do it right from there, which is why I think sometimes people think I'm being a jerk because I don't respond to stuff on Facebook, and they think, well, he was just on Facebook posting the podcast up. Why didn't he answer? It's because I'm not on Facebook. I'm usually on there. I try to go back and check things, but it's just, again, back in school, teaching, and time time is at a premium, so I do my best. So anyway, I do have one response I received from my buddy Adam Guest, who I've gone back and forth with over the last year or so. Really good dude, and he had a response to the last podcast, which of course was about just how dangerous or honestly, not dangerous are spiders and tarantulas are. Because again, I've since I've moved into spiders, some of the true keeping some of the true spiders, I've noticed a lot more people chiming in with why do you do that? It's dangerous. So we did a whole podcast devoted on kind of dispelling that and looking at some of the myths that there are around the world. And I did at the end of that podcast put out there that anybody that is from any of the areas like Australia or Brazil that have the supposed most deadly spiders in the world, could you chime in on what the deal is? Like, Because I had a funny feeling that people that live down there weren't quite as... How should I put it? We're, weren't quite buying into the hyperbole. Weren't quite buying into the hype. That it was probably a different situation. I mean, I'm sure they're cautious and careful, but I was wondering, you know, all right, is it really such a big deal down there? And he managed to chime in with a wonderfully written email, which I will just focus on the part that deals with the podcast. So... Adam writes, chiming in on the question you asked regarding people who live in countries with highly venomous spiders present, I spent a lot of time in Australia as I have family there and spent much of my time bug hunting and trying to find the native species in over 12 weeks of time spent there. I found a small cluster of redbacks and a couple of whitetails. I think there is more of a perception born of prejudice from outside Australia due to the prevalence of dangerous animals that live there and have been given infamy in popular culture. In reality, the risk is nowhere as great as pop culture blows it up to be. Culturally, there is a healthy respect, but not the abject fear that is displayed from people outside of the country. My cousins in NSW are extra careful during funnel web mating season and habitually check their shoes, towels, etc. But again, it's just a cautious respect. Even funnel webs with their reputation for being psychos do not actively hunt out people. It's unfortunately an issue of encroachment on their habitat as human development increases contact. But since antivenoms have been in wide circulation, I believe I'm right in saying that there hasn't been a funnel web spider death on Australia for decades. So, Adam, thank you so much for chiming in on this one because, again, I can talk all I want and it can, you know, I can make all these assumptions and, and conjecture, whatever, but to hear from somebody that's actually been there, that's lived around them, that has family that lives around them, and to hear this really does, you know, 
add a little more weight to what I was saying in the podcast, and that's the fact that we do blow this stuff out of proportion. I do, and I love the mention. I don't even know if I dwelled on this very much, but pop culture, popular culture, really driving this point out there. And and I know it's that sensationalistic. It, it gets views on TV shows. You know, when they do wildlife presentation, they talk about Australia and all its deadly fauna. It's, it's that sensationalistic TV approach because, again, they're trying to get – people love that kind of stuff. They love putting on the nature shows and hearing about how scary it is. And unfortunately, what they usually do is magnify the negative aspects of the animals, which I, I hate that kind of programming where it's like, we're going to talk about how deadly these all are. And then they never bothered to spend the time going, but in actuality, nobody's died from them recently, you know, in recent memory. That's an important part of it. All that's left, and again, I brought up the whole Jaws, anybody that's heard the story of Jaws or lived during that period remembers what happened afterwards. You know, people hated, every time you went in the water, you thought there was going to be a great white shark and people wanted to kill them because we didn't understand. And it's sad. And I think a lot a lot of us that are into spiders and tarantulas suffer from that because people look at us like we're weirdos, like we're putting ourselves in jeopardy, like we're putting our family, our pets in jeopardy by keeping these animals. They don't realize that the risk is nominal if kept correctly. And, and I argue with many of the species I've kept between spiders, true spiders and tarantulas. If you do things right, there shouldn't be a risk at all. So, it, again, it's one of those things that it, it bothers me only because I spend so much time trying to convince people they're not horrible animals. And I'm having some luck lately, and I'm hearing some great stories from coworkers and students and stuff. They're changing the way they approach tarantulas and spiders, which I think is great. And hopefully, podcasts like these, like when folks, I don't know if anybody would want to listen to one of my podcasts that isn't already into spiders, but the information's there for somebody that, you know, may come up to you and say, hey, how are you keeping these dangerous? things. Hey, check out this podcast. Listen to this podcast. There's some good information in here. So Adam, thank you so much for chiming in on this. I truly appreciate it because it does add credence to what I was saying last week. It does drive home that point that unfortunately, and I don't see it ever changing. It's like, it's it's as simple as and funny as Billy just went out and picked up a bunch of Halloween decorations for around the house. And we decorated the new yard and the house and out of the Halloween decorations, we have skeletons, we have like spooky zombies, and then we have a bunch of spiders. And at first I'm like, oh, she's like, oh, this is awesome, you know, because it's Tom's Big Spiders, we have the spiders. But then all of a sudden it clicks, and, and not to go over the top with it, but it's like, all right, there's not spiders on there because people are like, ooh, spiders are cool. There's spiders on there because everybody's scared of spiders. So it's it's part of the whole creepy Halloween time of year is the fact that, well, we have ghosts. We have zombies that are both scary. Zombies can kill you. Ghosts can scare you. And then we have spiders. So it kind of made me giggle because I'm like, yeah, and here we are perpetuating the whole thing not obviously not a big deal but it just kind of made me laugh because it does fall in line with spiders in popular culture we could talk about spiders i'm a huge video game player have been for years what are one of the most popular video game enemies in any video game you ever play spiders tarantulas like the dungeon crawlers there's always spiders in there they're right up there with the slimes if you know dark souls spider characters which a lot of us name are pets after there's spiders in popular culture are the enemy they're you know i'm thinking lord of the rings i'm thinking harry potter look at some of the villains in those spiders so we're never getting away with it i'm not i'm not an unrealistic person i'm a realist but I do hope that when people start showing interest in our hobbies, when we have, you know, obviously, inevitably, when you keep spiders, you're going to have folks that find out about it, that there are questions, at least we can little by little chisel away at that negative mystique we have surrounding them and start showing people or convincing people that they're not the demons that 
pop culture wants to think that they are, that they have been taught that they are, that their parents and their relatives have been taught that they are. So that's my point of doing this. Again, it's uh, unfortunately, you know, being honest, there's going to be continued to be YouTube videos out there that demonize them, people out there that are supposedly teaching about them, but then at the same time are teaching people that they are to be feared, that they are dangerous, that they are aggressive. I don't see that ending anytime soon because it's a great way to get views. But hopefully those of us out there that have brains in our head that aren't trying to exploit these creatures to make money will be able to, you know, at least be able to counter that to some some extent. So let's take a break from talking about spiders as being the creepy, crawly demons that media has made them out to be, and unfortunately some YouTube entertainers have made them out to be, and move on to a different topic, which is... Pamphibedius. I get more questions about Pamphibedius species. This is one, again, as I've explained before, a lot of times my podcast topics come from questions that are asked. Like if I get asked the same question multiple times in a week, it's like, oop, podcast topic. And this is one that uh, I honestly, I'm surprised I haven't covered yet. Maybe I have. So I've done so many, I was just telling Billy, like, I can't believe we've kept this thing going for so long because we're in our fourth year. They tend to run 45, 50 minutes each. We do like 52 of them in a year, sometimes 53 of them in a year. I, uh, shocked sometimes I haven't repeated myself more often because I don't even remember what I've done as a podcast anymore, which is sometimes why every once in a while we overlap some. But I like to revisit things anyway as time goes by, so it all works out in the end. But lots of questions about Pamphibedia species, and I do have a few Pamphibedia species, so we're going to kind of, I don't want to call it a genus review because I don't feel like I've kept enough of them. I don't have enough of them in my collection to really throw that out there. Like when we did Harpactera, when we did Formictopus, I have a lot of those species. But Pamphibedius care is not that difficult. And as we go through this, you'll hear it's very similar to a lot of our other big tropical species like Formictopus, for example. A lot of folks will come on to my videos and go, hey, I have a Pamphibedius species. Can I keep them pretty much the same way? Yes, there are a few differences I've noticed between Formictopus and Pamphibedius that I will highlight but overall, very similar care. So just to name the species I currently have, I have a Pamphibedius species Duran female. I have a Pamphibedius species Aranya polito female, the chicken spider, which is probably just some type of Antonis. And then I have my P. Antonis female. And I've had these guys for quite some time, although the only ones that I raised up from slings were two Pamphibedius species Durans. I had a uh, male that matured out, I believe, in 2016, so he's been gone. He, he's been gone for quite some time. But I have the female, the uh, the Aranya Pollito. I picked up as a juvenile. It was like a two and a half, three inch juvenile or so. And then the Antonis I picked up as, I believe, a three inch juvenile. But had these guys for quite some time. Loved it, and and I get a lot of them. Like, it's funny because back in the day, the and I'll be completely honest with this, I was obsessed with Pamphibedia species. I was like, they were the ones that were out there that there were all these different locales and different species of them, but they were super expensive and I was cheap early on in the hobby. So what I noticed early on was that the Formictopus species kind of got the same size, like they, they were a little beefier than the, the Pamphibedius overall, but they seemed to have some of the same traits and they were a lot cheaper. So I started getting Formictopus species. And then what happened is we, as it's been well documented, I became obsessed with getting all the different Formictopus species. It seemed like every time I thought I had all the ones that were available, there would be more that would be introduced. And it's just been this obsession with me. So I can only concentrate on so many big spiders 
So unfortunately, the Panthamedius went to the wayside, but I get so many people that contact me like, hey, how come you don't have more Panthamedius species? Why don't you get more Panthamedius species? It's not that I don't like them. It's just at this point, I know they'll end up being something I want to get one of every type, and I have limited space now. So unfortunately, the Formictopus kind of you know took up that room for me. But now, ironically enough, Formictopus species have become like the new Panthamedius or Zenestis species where they're finding all these different ones from different locales that they're selling for exorbitant amounts of money because, you know, hey, this is new one, first one in the hobby, and we don't even know if they're just different color cancerities or whatever. So now, unfortunately, after like eight, nine years of buying different Formictopus, they've become the new designer tarantula. But Pamphlebedius still holds, I think, that special place for many, many people. For many folks, that's their first big expensive one. That's their first big spider. They do kind of have that designer spider feel to it because, I, you know, anytime somebody offers up Pamphlebedius species, everybody are jumping on them. So figured, what the heck, let's go through the care of these guys and talk about how we keep them, which they're actually very, very simple. Now, when you get them, they, I believe all the species, I could be mistaken on this, but all the species as, sli- as slings have that Christmas tree pattern on the abdomen, and that's actually what first attracted me to them, is I saw a picture somebody had posted up, and for some reason, I thought that was a full-grown adult, and I'm like, I need that spider. And then, obviously, you know, 10 minutes more research, figured out that it was actually just a spiderling Panthamedia species, but they're so cool-looking as slings. One of the spider species that are genera of spiders that you do get some awesome color changes as they grow up. So even speaking of my Pamphobetus species, Durans, which I'll spend a lot of time talking about because I did get them when they had the little Christmas tree patterns on their butt. I was enamored with them. And then as they changed, as they grew, as they molted, as they put on size, the colors they picked up. There was one point where both of them were, you know, for lack of a better term, almost like a, a muted fuchsia coloration, even the female. But unfortunately with Pamphobetus species, and this is not a knock on them, it's just to let people know because I've heard from people who are disappointed that they realize after the fact, oh, I didn't realize that, well, only the males generally keep those bright colors. The females tend to turn more darker colors later on. So for example, with the Panthamedius species Duran, that mature male I had to date, the most, I'll say it, the most beautiful colors on a spider I've ever seen. Those muted fuchsias that they both had when they were like probably about six inches or so, when the male had his ultimate molt, oh my God, they were just purples, fuchsia, almost pink. It just The thing looked neon. It looked fake. I could take photos of this without a flash and it would still show up those purples and pinks. Just one of the most stunning animals I have ever kept. The female molted You know, the male had his mature molt, the female had her next molt, and she still kept some of those pinks for a little while, but then after the next molt, she went to brown, and then the molt after that, there was more brown, and she also became a bit more fluffy, which I found interesting, because a lot of the Pamphobedia species are slick, they almost look like velvet, which is one of the things I absolutely adore about them, these big, giant, velvety-looking spiders, but she got a little more fluffy, she's a fluffy girl now, and a little more thick, almost resembles, honestly, almost resembles a Formictopus species, quite frankly, but they do normally lose those colors, and I could be mistaken, somebody chime in, I mean, again, I have three species of them, and the Durand was the one that had the most bright colors, the Antinus tend to be a little darker, although there's one species of Antinus that's have blue on it, and I believe the females do keep some of that blue. I could be wrong, but a lot of them do lose those bright colors. So that's something to be aware of. Again, not a knock, just I can't tell you how many people pick these guys up and I'll get an email going, yeah, my girl molted out. Is she going to get those purples back? Mm, probably not, unfortunately. But 
Anyway, as far as how to keep them, they are back when I first started scouting them out. One reason I avoided them, A, was the price tag. They were all very, very expensive. But B, the other reason was it was a lot out there about their moisture dependency. Some people were comparing them along the lines of Theraphosa species as far as needing that moist substrate. And I do think as slings, it is prudent to keep them moist. I would never argue to not keep slings moist. I keep mine moist as juveniles. However, I've spoken to many people that keep the adults dry with a water dish. I will flood, I will do the water dish trick while I have a big water dish in them. So I do give them a, a good size water dish and I will flood a corner of the enclosure by letting things dry out a little bit in between. So I have not gone over the top. I do not believe that they have specific humidity requirements, at least just keeping them, you know, if you're just keeping them as pets. For people trying to breed them, I'm sure there are tricks to breeding that involve making sure they have a moist season, quote unquote, moist season in their enclosure to kind of facilitate that breeding activity but keeping them just healthy I found that very much like again I'm going to compare them because I find both of the species of these genera to be very similar Pamphibedius and Formictopus they're very much like Formictopus where as adults when they put on some size they are very sturdy and hardy spiders so don't if you're one of those people out there that's read that they need to be kept moist don't let that keep you away from them. I do think early on it's definitely important to keep them moist. And I would, I mean, honestly, I do give them moisture as adults, but I let it dry out in between. So they're not, they do perfectly fine like that. So don't worry about those moisture requirements you read out there. They're mostly all BS. Now, as far as slings, they are larger as slings. They're one of the species that starts off pretty good size. So 16 ounce deli cup to something, you know, around even a full quart would be prudent. So you're talking, you know, one of those, I, I don't know what the... I think it was 0.5 liters it would be, would be the equivalent of a 16-ounce deli cup. Something around a half half liter or so is perfect for them. You're going to want to give them moist substrate. You're going to want to give them a little, I like to give them a little cork bark hide with a starter burrow. And this is something else we'll talk about, something that I've found that's a little different than most of my Formictimus species. They will burrow and many of them will burrow right on through adulthood. So that's something a little different for my Formictopus where the majority of them gave up their burrowing, even though I gave them a lot of you know space to burrow, they just don't bother burrowing. These guys tend to like to burrow. They definitely burrow as slings. Mine, I found, would dig little burrows, but they would wait at the front of the burrow. So unlike a fossorial species, say, where you barely ever see it or maybe you just see the front feet, I would catch them sitting out in front of their burrows, but as soon as you disturb the enclosure, they would bolt back into it. As slings and juveniles, and quite frankly, as adults, mine are all very, very skittish. So expect to see them as soon as you disturb their enclosure, they are bolting right back into their burrows. They are fantastic eaters. A lot has been made over there. This is the one where back in the day when I was reading up on Formictopus, and I believe it was on arachnoboids, I want to say, which I find odd. There were folks talking about, you know, they were, all, were always talking about, can you overfeed spiders? That's a big debate. I personally believe that with most spiders, and I've done it because I've probably quote unquote overfed mine, what you're going to get is not a spider that's going to grow any more quickly. It's not like snakes where we feed snakes to the point where they it actually shortens their lifespan. They grow super quickly. They have health issues. What I found with spiders is usually what happens is they fill up quickly and then you get an extra long pre-malt period. So the spider may eat a ton of food in a week, but then you're going to have like a year long, especially for a larger species, like a year long or more pre-malt while the spider just kind of chills out and gets ready for molt. So I found that with, uh, with Pamphibedius, when I was first looking up information on this was one of the spiders that people would say could overeat. And there was a uh, myth out there, which I will say myth because I don't believe this is the case. There was a myth that they would eat right up to the point where they molted and that they could eat until they exploded. And I saw this repeated a couple times and backed up by people who I normally would have thought would have been the first ones to go, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. 
Here's the deal. If a spider, here, what makes it dangerous for a spider to be too fat is if it crawls on, uh, climbs up on something, falls, and ruptures its abdomen. A very, very fat spider, an overly fat spider, is in danger of rupturing its abdomen. That's no joke. So if you got a spider that really fills up, and sometimes what'll happen is they have that big meal when they're already kind of fat, and that big meal, they finish it up, but it kind of puts them a little bit over the top. I could see that being an issue. So I'm guessing, I mean, somebody said that there's basically spontaneously exploded. I'm guessing what might have happened is the spider climbed, fell, and ruptured its abdomen. I don't think they can eat to the point where their abdomens just explode. Now, if somebody has proof of that, please let me know. But I do recall this being a myth about these guys, and I have heard from people over the years that have told me, hey, I've got a pamphibedia species, but I'm afraid I'm feeding it too much. I don't want it to explode. So whatever the case, that's an older myth. It seems to be persevering as the years go on and we get more information about them. So I have not found that they will eat till they explode. I have found that they will eat right up until the molt. And I've had a couple instances with the three that I keep that they literally ate until like a few days before molting. I had one with, I believe it was the Panthobetius antinus where I dropped in some crickets. I thought it was in pre-molt. I was ready to pull them out. She came up, ate the crickets, no problem, went down in her hole, flipped over a few days later, blew my mind. Like that's not something you normally see with spiders. So I have seen that. I have heard of that. Maybe that's where it comes from where people are like, man, these spiders are crazy. They're going to eat right up to a point where they explode. But I don't think that if you feed yours too much or too aggressively, your spider is just going to blow up on you. Now, as to what to feed your spiders, we're not going to start talking about tarantula nutrition. This is one that pops up quite a bit. And again, maybe there is, maybe there are some reports out there, some scientific studies of it. But when people start barking like, hey, mealworms are too fatty or crickets are not good enough because there's not enough meat on them or whatever it may be. I've heard these arguments out there. I don't think any of that has been proven or disproven. A, A very diet can't hurt. I would say that. So I do mix things up occasionally, but as I've stated before, my main feeder for most of my guys has been crickets for many, many years. However, mealworms, roaches, whether it be B. dubia or B. lateralis, whether they Turkish red runners or something like that, would work. Superworms, those, uh, you know, what are those ones called? Everybody, the big blue worms that seem to be the big thing now that they feed them. I guess those would work. Those just seem to be kind of pricey. Whatever it may be, they eat just about anything. And I found his slings, they are voracious eaters and awesome hunters up there, right up there with Formictopus as far as their takedowns. The You can offer them smaller prey to start. And this is this goes with any sling. I have people ask me, you know, what, or contact me quite a bit with, hey, I'm trying to feed my sling and it's scared of the prey at them. And I have them take a picture of the sling and the prey at them. And it's like a one inch sling with a one inch cricket. Well, yes, because that cricket could harm it. You want to make sure you give it something, you know, I always start off with something small for the first meal. So I want them to be recognized as this is something I can easily take down and eat. And then the next meal, I may try them with something a little bit bigger. So rule of thumb, little tip, when you're feeding any sling, and this doesn't matter if it's Pamphibedias, Theraphosa, Pizzolatheria, whatever you may be, your Brachypelma species, whatever it may be, start off with something smaller first. If you're using live prey with sling, a sling, start off with something that seems to be almost a little small for the sling. Like you look at it, it's like that's more of a snack than a meal. That's fine. See how it deals with the live prey. I've had some slings that will only do pre-kill until they put on some size. They won't touch anything. It doesn't matter how small it is. So always try it out with something smaller first. And then when they take that down good, start with something a little bigger next time. See what happens. With Pamphibedius, mine have all been pretty good with taking down larger prey items. Like if 
I had an inch and a quarter sling and I dropped the medium cricket in there, a good size cricket, they would wrestle that thing down and eat it no problem. And I think most people find the same thing. So this is one, again, like the Formictopus or Theraphosa species that if it's moving and they think they got a shot at killing it, and they're going to go at it. So they're not usually going to be scared by larger prey. But again, just a tip for anybody keeping slings. Now, in the setups, I, I think I mentioned I like to put in the cork bark. I like to put in moss. I played around over the years. I just switched to a new greener moss that I'm really liking. I used to use a green moss, but it was kind of this cheap stuff, and it would get mold all the time. So I switched to New Zealand uh, sphagnum moss. That stuff's nice and does hold water very well and tends not to mold very much, but it's not very pleasing to the eye because it's kind of like a, a beige coloration. So that's one of the reasons I went over to the green stuff is the aesthetic appeal of it. I do like the way it looks in the enclosures. It does hold water well. So whatever moss you use, put a little moss in there. And these are guys that they're going to start up big enough that you could probably put the water dish in the enclosure, a water bottle cap, soda bottle cap, something like that to make sure you wash off well, put it in there. Somebody just commented on one of the other things, a popular water dish for smaller slings are the little tattoo uh, containers that you use. I don't know what they're called the little containers that you use to hold the ink in i was just getting tattoo work done i should ask what they were called but those make great little water dishes for small ones you just kind of plant them in the water put some water in there they're great but i would definitely say these guys start off big enough that you can probably you should probably start them in a larger enclosure a because they're going to put on size very quickly we'll get to that in a minute when we do growth rate and b because they start off bigger and you have a larger enclosure no reason you can't put a water dish in there to back up give them a little backup place to hydrate if they need it so slings grow quickly i got my i think my duran in late 2013 early 2004 it might have been early 2014 and by 2015 or so, it was pushing five five inches. So it grew, it hit five inches in a year. That's really good growth rate. They grow very, very quickly. So this is one of those species that some people will probably find that they could skip the juvenile enclosure and go right to an adult enclosure if that's your thing. I don't do it. I don't skip it. And I've had people go, well, isn't that disturbing of an extra time? You know what I found over years of rehousing? They settle in so quickly. I mean, that's not, I, we don't want to disturb them any more than we have to. But if a spider in three years time gets moved three times, that's really not a very big deal. You got to figure even in the wild, they're probably gonna have situations where their dens are disturbed or they're flooded and they move, whatever it may be. I, I found that mine, especially species like Formictopus, you know, the big ones, Formictopus, Cerecopelma, uh, Pamphibedius, all of the Theraphosa, they, you can drop them in a new enclosure and they'll eat immediately. And then next thing you know what, they're building their burrows or whatever and they're perfectly fine. So I don't find it to be a big deal because I've had folks go, well, if you can just move them from sling to adult, why don't you do it? I just like to give them that juvenile enclosure and basically be able to monitor in there until they put on enough side and then we move it to the adult one. But if you wanted to do that, this is one of those species that you're going to find is going to go from that little one inch sling to before you know it, it's going to be, you know, a gangly three inches or so dropping a three inch Pamphibedia species into an adult enclosure would not be a big deal at all. So that is there for people that want to do that, whatever. But if you're looking to put the juvenile into a juvenile enclosure, I was using one of those shoe, like one of those shoebox sterilite containers. And for those of you overseas, I'm sure you've got something comparable. But we have like the plastic shoebox containers here. I know Amazon has these hinged acrylic ones. Same thing; they work really nice. They're about 12 inches by six inches by six inches or so, which I believe is about 30.5 by 15.25 by 15.25 centimeters around there. Kind of a rough estimate, but something around that size will give them some space. And again, you want to make sure the big thing with these guys 
guys, and this is where I've gone wrong before, they will still want to dig. A lot of, I think when I got my Pamphos, I was comparing them too much to Formictopus. My Formictopus, once they hit around two and a half, three inches, a lot of them weren't burrowing anymore. They were out and about. My Pamphos have continued to burrow right on through adulthood. So the slings, you're going to want to give them something that not only offers some floor space, but room for at least three or four inches of moist substrate so that they can burrow. I would definitely do the cork bark hide. I would definitely give it a starter burrow. Again, the moss, you know, the standard setup, some moss, a water dish, some leaf litter, if you like that, maybe a couple fake plants. It's it's not a big deal if you don't do the fake plants because I got a funny feeling most of you are going to find that yours will burrow. So make sure whatever you put them in as juveniles, it, it allows for some depth because they are most likely going to want to do some burrowing again. I have had ones that seem to abandon their burrow. So for example, my Formictibus antinus, for a little while, I thought she was going to abandon her burrow. She was hanging outside all the time. She wasn't going to her burrow. Then she went to pre-molt. She dug all the way down to her burrow again, filled it in, molted, and then stayed in her burrow. So she went back to burrowing after that molt. So my theory is, and I've stressed this many times before, if they want to burrow or you think they may want to burrow, don't be a substrate Scrooge. Give them the substrate depth they need to do burrowing if they want to. If they don't do burrowing, who cares? At least that substrate isn't going to go to waste because if you want to give them a nice environment and give them a little moisture, you, it'll allow you to keep those lower levels moist while the top levels dry up a bit so you're not getting mold and things like that. So juveniles, something around that size, I mean, I think that would be probably around, I don't know, three gallons or so. You're going to want some size because they're going to go through two or three molts in that period where they're going to put on a lot of size. Their leg span is definitely going to increase quite a bit. So they're not going to be in there all that long. And you want to make sure that they have the room to do what they need to do, especially in that you know last molt before you move them out into the adult enclosure. And then as far as feeding, again, you're talking at this stage, probably large prey items. I mean, maybe a medium doobie. I don't know if I'd throw a whole, eh, they'd probably eat a large doobie too. Now they think I'm trying to picture, you know, you're talking anything from, you know, juvenile size, two and a half inches or so to maybe five inches around there. So yeah, don't go crazy with it, but an adult dubia would probably be just fine, honestly. And the a couple large crickets or two or three or four large crickets that are sitting, I usually feed mine multiples. I love watching them all scarf them up and make a big old cricket burrito on them. If you're using red runners, again, several red runners, they'll grab them all up, make a burrito out of them. Superworms, few superworms again. Heads up with the superworms. Remember, they can bite. People don't think so. I did a video. I did a video once where I was feeding mine, and I happened to have only superworms. I forget what happened. I think I couldn't get crickets. So I ordered a bunch of superworms, and somebody pointed out in the video where the superworm turned around and bit the tarantula on the leg repeatedly. So just keep that in mind with the superworms. You want to crush their heads ahead of time. They can also damage a molting tea, so be careful with those. But any of those will work as feeders. As far as feeding schedule, I haven't touched on that. Pick a schedule that works for you. There's no right or wrong. I have people that say, you know, you have to feed them once a week. You have to feed them. Daily. No, you don't. As slings, I usually feed mine twice a week. They're hungry. They're voracious eaters, and I'm trying to get them out of that sling stage. Once they hit, you know, two and a half, three inches or so, I slow it down to once a week. And with the adults, when we get to the adults, we're talking right now once a week to once every two weeks, depending. There are people that feed theirs once a month. That's perfectly fine. You give them a larger meal once a month. It's It doesn't hurt anything. In the wild, they're probably not eating as often as they do in our own collections, or at least not with the same regularity. So there's no harm in having a feeding schedule that isn't an aggressive feeding schedule. I want to make that very clear because there's still folks out there that freak out when you're like, I put on one of my videos that I feed them every two weeks and like, well, that's not enough. I feed mine every day. I'm like, eh, they're... 
That's probably a little too much. But again, whatever works for you. If you feed them too much, what you're going to end up with is a spider that spends a lot of time in primo. So as far as adults, this is where, you know, they're a big spider. I think my P. antonis is around eight and a half inches now. I think my species Duran is around eight, eight and a half inches now. I think my Aranya Pollito is around, I think, seven and three quarters or so. She's getting big. She's a big gangly girl. So they are big spiders. So you're going to want something that offers a decent amount of floor space. Right now, I have my Aranya Pollito in one of the primal cages, the big ones, I think it's around 16 by 12 by 10 or so, which is 41 centimeters by 30.5 by 25.5. I hope you folks overseas appreciate that. I'm looking all these up. It's, I almost started doing the podcast. And I forgot to take my notes with the metric system. So I got those in there. I have another one that's in a smaller container that's only, I think, 16 inches by 12 inches. And that one's only, I'm looking over it now, about seven inches deep or so. So almost the same directions. I'm sorry, I didn't look up the seven in centimeters, but hopefully folks can figure out what is probably about... I don't know, maybe 17 centimeters deep. I'm not sure. Sorry about that. I didn't get that. As I'm bragging about that, I looked these up. I forgot to look that one up. And then I do have one which is getting a rehousing soon. I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to put it in one of the primal cages or something different. But that one is in one of the sterilite bins I use for my larger terrestrial species. And that one's about 16 by, I believe, 10 by about six deep or so. And honestly, she's still, she is burrowed for quite a bit. She's still kind of, she still has a burrow in there. And I think she'd probably like more space to do some better burrowing. So that's one of the reasons I want to get her out of there into something that shows her off a little more and gives her a little more space to burrow. Because as we mentioned, and folks chime in with this, when you keep, again, when I do these care guides, this is one person talking and I'm very cognizant of that. And I want everybody listening to be cognizant of that. Listen to what other folks say as well. So if you want to chime in with how you're keeping yours, absolutely chime in. Let me know if your older specimens are still burrowing because all three of mine are. And that's something I think is unique with these guys compared to some of the other species that I've kept, particularly the Formictopus when you talk about Formictopus because most of my Formictopus have abandoned their burrows. I do have my Erratus seem to like to burrow still. And I have one in one of the large primal cage enclosures. I put like six inches of substrate in and she actually burrowed and buried herself when she molted. And that was at six inches. I've never, most of my Formictomus species don't do that. So for those keeping Pamphibidia species, my Aranya Pollito spent a little time. I put her in one of those enclosures. I gave her about six inches to burrow in. It took her a little while, but she burrowed and she now has a burrow and she's usually in the burrow. Although when I come down in the morning, she's out like right front and center. And then if I, you know, tap the enclosure, she goes back into her burrow. My Antonis has right now just kind of a burrow in her enclosure, but unfortunately the thing I gave her, again, doesn't give her enough room, so I'm probably going to get her into something different so she can have some more room. And then the Duran does burrow. So something to keep in mind if they, again, rule of thumb, if they give them the opportunity, it doesn't hurt. I think sometimes, and I've been there, I'm guilty of this as well. You go, oh, well, they're not really burrowing, so I'm going to give you something shallow. And then all of a sudden you see they're trying to burrow again. So try to give them the room when possible, although many people keep them terrestrially. If you do keep them terrestrially without any room to burrow, again, I'm not saying they're fossorial. I'm just saying they tend to appreciate that extra room to burrow. Make sure you give them an adequate hide. And this means not just putting something, you know, 
I hate when I see these hides that are just these big vacuous, like they just flip some big piece of cork bark over and there's no real like security in it. Remember tarantulas that burrow, they like that security. If they have a hide, try to do one of those things. Even if you have a shallower enclosure, one trick is say you have an enclosure that's only six inches deep is to put the hide at one end and build the substrate up around it at the other end. So it's going to be a little higher than maybe the substrate at the front of the enclosure, but it does give them more security. And then you can also, if you've got a larger, if you're using a cork bark round that seems pretty big, shove some sphagnum moss in there to kind of make it feel a little tighter. A lot of times you'll see they'll go in behind the sphagnum moss, dig it out and start kind of digging in underneath it and build their burrow that way. But try to give them something that's more than just, you know, I'm guilty, again, guilty of this as well. You drop a piece of cork bark in there around, like, there you go, you can hide in that. But if it's not a tight little enclosure, they can feel, you know, again, it needs to feel dark. They need to feel enclosed. They like those tight spaces. If it doesn't offer that, it's not really a great hide for them. So a tip there, if you are setting one up with more shallow substrate, try to build something up so at least it has an adequate hide. Big old water dish. That's a big one. I give my guys big water dishes, keep them nice and full. And as far as the moisture, moisten, I moisten down a corner and let it dry out in between. So there are periods where the substrate is dry, then I moisten it up, gets a little moist, dries out again. As long as they've got that big old water dish in there, they should be fine. And a rule, one of the things I've noticed in a kind of a, a tip, if your spider, it feels like it's too dry in its enclosure, they will start hanging around the water dish. They want to keep those book lungs moist. So you'll see the spider like hovering over the water dish. That's a sign that your enclosure is too dry. So should you keep the spider dry? and notice that means you not got to moisten things down. And of course, what I sometimes forget to mention, take keep in mind your local climate. If you live, I got a lot of folks, a lot of people over in the Philippines where it's naturally very humid, you already have that humidity in your air. So as long as you're not drying it out with heating elements, which I hope you wouldn't do it because it's, it's also quite warm, you don't have to worry as much about that. I'm in Connecticut. The wintertime, dry as heck. I need to be a little more attentive to the moisture levels inside my enclosure. I need to make sure water dishes stay full. For some of them, I need to make sure the substrate stays moist. And for my Formictopus, I'm a little more careful during the wintertime, making sure they got that extra moisture in there. In the summertime, however, where it hits 90s outside and the humidity is through the roof here, we're talking humidity in the 70s up to the 90s, it's not as important. Then you can back off. And I had somebody argue this with me once. It was kind of funny because I posted that if you're really humid, area, it's overkill to oversaturate the substrate. And they're like, no, you got to do it all the time. Well, no, you don't. Because one of the reasons you're keeping the substrate moist is so they have that moisture in their enclosure. And if it's super moist outside, you are going to create kind of a a festering container in there, a dank festering home for your spider. You don't want that. So stay attuned to what your natural, you know, what your weather is in the area that you're at. If you have high humidity, you can back off in the wintertime when it's cooler. Or if you live in a very dry, warm, dry locale, that may be a place where you want to make sure you're a little more attentive to the moisture. But as I've said before, I've spoken to many people that keep them dry with a water dish and they do just fine. So keep in mind that you're likely, your spider is going to be quite hardy. You don't need to obsess over the moisture no matter what you may read. Now, as far as the temperaments, mine have all been rather skittish. As slings, they were skittish and shy. As juveniles, they were skittish and shy. I have had them kick hairs before, but they're not huge hair kickers. I get a lot of bolting. I get a lot of bolting around the enclosure, especially if you catch them out and they don't get to their dens quickly enough. They bounce all around. The other day, I had my Aranya Polito was out, and I'm like, I'm going to get some good photos of her, and I took the cage out, and I carefully slid the container, the top off, and unfortunately, I kind of bumped the container, and she like ran around three laps and then went into her burrow. So they are rather skittish. I have not had any threat poses that I can think of from any of mine, so that's a plus. 
plus. But they are kind of skittish and might have been kind of skittish and shy, I'm sure. I'm positive. There are folks out there that have ones that are probably more pet rockish. So chime in with that. But those are just, that's from my experience. All three of mine now are adults, young adults, and all three of them are rather skittish. But I can get, the other day, I did have my species Duran out. She used to actually be in the day. Now that I think of it, she was more of a hair kicker. She was the one that was kicking hair. Both her and the male were a little kicky earlier on, but they outgrew it. But she was out the other day out of her den, and I took the container out, and I put it on my little table, and I got my camera out. She actually posed for some footage, which was great. So she seems to be finally calming down. My Antonis went through a stage where she was like a pet rock. There were times where I opened that, and this is no joke. I would open that enclosure and worry that she was dead because she didn't move. And I'd like kind of spray the ground by her to see if she'd move. She still would move, and then finally she'd like walk away. Now, after her last molt, she's become more skittish again. So it has been... It seems like it goes with the molts. Sometimes they're, they calm down a little bit. Sometimes they are a little more skittish. Overall, I would call it a skittish species. But please feel free to chime in what you've witnessed with them. And as far as feeding the adults, again, they're great eaters. Five or six crickets, large crickets, a pop. They'll put a big old burrito together, big roaches. I've actually won a few I've fed, uh, fed hissing cockroaches to, but I don't like doing I feel bad for the hissers, so I'm not a big fan of that. But it, it would work to fill them up after a molt or a couple big, you know, juicy dubia roaches. They'll eat those up really well. But again, great eaters, great hunters, although... My Pamphibetus antinus now has become a bit of a shy eater. Well, sometimes I'll open up her enclosure and she'll cower down into her burrow and I will drop prey items in and they'll just run around her and she won't bite them until I actually put the top on the burrow and put it back. So that's something to keep in mind. But overall, great eaters and I've had none of them eat so much that they exploded. So that's probably a good point as well. And as far as temperatures, when I first got my species Durans, it was when the tarantula room would hit the mid to uh, mid 60s to high 60s at times. And then I believe this, the year after I got them, they already put on some size and when I actually started heating the tarantula room because I wanted to, I wanted to increase my growth rates a little bit because I started doing the videos and everything. And then a little trivia here, just for fun, the, I believe the first husbandry video I ever did on YouTube, if I'm not mistaken, was back in like 2015, maybe 2014. And it featured Pamphibedius species Duran. I think it was the first time I went, you know what, instead of just writing the article on these guys, because back when I had the Tom Speak Spiders website, let me try to do a husbandry video. And I've watched it and it's freaking terrible. It's it's not, It's if you want to see how I start, I'm, I'm still, again, I marvel at the fact that I ever got any type of an audience. And again, it's a nice, it's not a, a huge audience. But it's I got a pretty decent audience over there, and I marveled that I was able to do that because apparently people were able to see through the fact that my video just looked like some dude whipping out a cell phone in his tarantula room and um um umming his way all through it, and apparently appreciate the information, which is great. But I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, a little trivia that might have been my first husbandry, actual full husbandry video. Before that, it was a lot of like. I think I might have done a couple rehousings. I think I might have done a lot. Of, I was doing a lot of the feeding videos with metal in the background, you know, like talk about trite. But uh, that was, I think, the first one that I actually did a care video on, which is kind of cool, I guess. So we've come a long way since then. They've, I think, we polished things up a bit, made it a little more presentable, but. But I digress, back to the temperatures. Uh, back then, they were kept in the low 60s. I did start heating it, so then they had low 70s. But the, again, when you read something out there that says they have to be kept at 80 degrees, that's BS. I'm just going to throw it out there because I'm tired of you know the, the misinformation. Can you keep them at 80? 
Of course. Is it going to, what you're going to get is probably faster growth rate. That we've, we've said that many times. But to say they have to be kept at higher temps, and this is one of the species that people go, oh, it's a tropical species, has to be kept around 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 26.7 degrees Celsius. You can keep them like that. It's obviously not going to do any harm to the spider, but you don't have to keep them that high. What you will get is a spider that will still eat, will still grow. It just might not grow as quickly as it would at those higher temperatures. So let's make that very, very clear because I have heard people that say they don't want to get this uh, species of Pamphibedius because they've read that they will die if not kept hot or that they need it super warm or whatever. That's not true. So hopefully that puts some people's minds at ease. I think you will find if you do chance picking one of these guys up, because again, I know they can be kind of pricey. If you do chance picking one of these guys up, I think you will find they are very, very hardy spider. This would not be a species I would hesitate to plunk down big money for because I'd be very confident that it was going to grow well, grow quickly. Again, I'm sure folks have lost them out there because every time I say something like this, somebody comes on like, oh man, I lost my... uh, platyoma or something and i feel badly about it but i think overall they're a very hardy genus of the tarantula that most folks i think could just walk right into keeping now as far as beginner species i get this asked this one a bit too they are a larger species they are a faster growing species they are a species i do think benefits from some moisture early on but most slings do so i don't know if that really makes them any more difficult but some folks may be intimidated by a larger skittish spider so that would be something that would cause me a bit of pause as far as recommending them to somebody brand new to the hobby but somebody that you know has maybe had a gbb or something before is probably going to do just fine when they kind of might have kind of acted a bit like gbbs with a, a bit less kicking well Duran had a kicking stage, but the other one's a bit less kicking. So I think somebody that's, you know, got a little bit of experience under their belt and hasn't been in the hobby all that long to gets one will probably do just fine if they get a sling and grow with it. So I can't think of anything I've missed on this. Every time I do one of these, I get done, I go to do my editing, and I worry I miss something. The other thing I'm worrying about in this one, and I'm just going to apologize now, is I can't tell you how many times I go to say Pamphibedius and I say Formictopus or vice versa. So if I did that at any point during this podcast, we obviously I brought Formictopus into it because I do think they're very similar in how I keep them, how you raise them. I think they're very similar spiders, awesome spiders, but... We are talking about Pamphibetus here. So I'm just, this is my disclaimer if I slip to some point, because every once in a while I go to do, I never re-listen to my podcasts when I edit them. Like I don't sit down and listen to the whole thing because I can't stand listening to myself speak for that long, quite frankly. But I will kind of bounce around and every once in a while I'll have a podcast that I do and I bounce around and I happen to hit a point where I said something completely wrong or misspoke and I'm like cringing because I'm wondering how many times I've done that in podcasts. There was that one a couple of years ago where I got interviewed by another podcast and made up my own species of tarantulas like a Fonapelma albopelosum or something. I totally just in the moment screwed it up and there was no going back on that one because I can't edit it. So if I happen to have slipped at one point, I apologize, but we are talking about Pamphibedius, but they are so similar and they are, and I think this is pretty cool. They're kind of like there's that group of spiders, the tropical spiders, the big fast growing ones like Theraphosa, Pamphibedius. Zenestis, and now, honestly, for Mictopus, we can add that to the list. Those the ones that are you know big start off as big slings. They're fast growing. They eat great. Beautiful spiders, and tend to carry a pretty hefty price tag. So they're kind of in that group there. So you can't go wrong with any of those guys. But Pamphibedius, those Pamphibedius connoisseurs out there, make your voices heard. You know, tell people how great they are. Again, I have three species. I would have more if I had more room. I do plan on getting more in the future because I get a lot of questions about these. But you know. Sing the praises. Tell people what they're about. Show pictures of them. Show some of your... If you have females, to keep those colors. Show me pictures of females with the colors. Show off the males because it's one of those ones, one of those types of spiders, a species of spider 
spiders or uh, genera of spiders that even if you get a male, it's almost like you're okay with it because the male is going to be beautiful. Again, that species Duran male, my God, one of the most beautiful things I have, one of the most beautiful spiders I've ever seen in my life. So that will do it for this one for a rare Saturday recording. I can hear a bunch of activity going on downstairs because unfortunately Saturdays when my kids always have their friends over and everything. So I'm going to end this one now. We managed to make 47 minutes, which I'm kind of surprised at because the other reason I don't like doing the, the single species type podcast is because I can usually do it all in like 15, 20 minutes. So this one, it, tend up, it was a longer one, which is good. So for the folks that have those long drives, hopefully we filled up that drive. And uh, God bless you for being able to listen to me for that long. That will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on thomasbigspires.com. You can find me on YouTube. I will probably be shooting a video rehousing one of my Ophilipinus juveniles. These are one of the ones I bred my female. Unfortunately, she passed away, but one of the babies that will be replacing her. So very excited to get them into a better, nicer enclosure. So we'll probably be doing that this weekend. That'll be my video. I've already done a big care video on them, so it won't be a lot of care notes, but hopefully it'll be a nice rehousing and some pictures of these spiders because I know a lot of you guys out there ended up picking these guys up when they were for sale. And you've been asking me, hey, what are yours looking like? Here, I've gotten pictures of some of the ones that folks have out there. My buddy Charles showed me one of the ones that I gave him. So hopefully this will be a nice little update for those that have those spiders and obviously Ophilipinus has kind of been my trademark spider for many years so we'll do a video on that so anybody interested that'll probably be up at some point on Sunday afternoon so that'll do it for this one as always guys stay safe we'll catch you all next time